The events that we just read uh, are often referred to as the fall. In fact, if you've got a Bible open in front of you, it might even have that heading added to it. This is the fall, a great tumbling descent from both perfection and potential, uh, a descent into disappointment and misery and death. Uh, We have a daughter still in her first couple of months of walking uh, and in the past two months she has fallen many times, mostly just little plops and tumbles. Uh, But every time so far she's gotten up again. And you might not remember your last fall or tumble or all the many that you did when you were little, uh, but every time to date so far you've gotten up again. But this that we just read about is the fall. Uh, This is the one fall from which the whole of humanity is still yet to recover. And I'll say this, understanding Genesis chapter 3, alongside Genesis 1 and 2, it gets you almost all the way there to understanding yourself and understanding the nature of the world that we live in. Uh, Because of the events of Genesis chapter 3, we are by nature hopelessly separated from God. That is our natural naked state. And we are drawn repeatedly as individuals, repeatedly and willfully into sin and self-destruction. And I wonder, does that ring any bells for you of your own life or as you look at the lives of people around you? It feels true, doesn't it? We are drawn willfully and repeatedly into sin and even self-destructive tendencies. Uh, But that blot of Genesis chapter 3 and that experience of sinfulness and fallenness that obscures a canvas that is more truly one of perfection and potential. Uh, A picture that was painted in Genesis 1 and chapter 2, um, where all humanity is made in the likeness of the one true God, living in a good world that he made for us to enjoy. And so that's why, as we look around, we see beauty uh, in the good world that God made, and we see brilliance in humanity, in humanity's capacity for creativity and kindness. People do amazing things every day. But it's also why, as we look around, we see all of this good stuff and potential marred and covered with sin and sickness and sorrow, things that we all see every day, but we all kind of know, feel out of place. It feels wrong when bad things happen. And it's why when we look within, uh, we are sometimes disappointed uh, because we've been imprinted with the mark of God's own image, uh, even his own glory. And so as we look within and we, we look among us at other people, we sense potential, we see good stuff, but we stumble and we all fall. And so uh, these passages together, Genesis 1, 2 and 3, make sense of why it feels wrong that we fall and why uh, sin and, and sickness seem so out of place in a world that would otherwise make so much more sense if it was just good. Uh, th- this passage of Scripture exists, uh, this one in Genesis chapter 3, exists in at least three spheres all at once. It tells, first of all, a singular story of Adam and Eve. Uh, In one sense, it's their story and it's their story alone. Uh, The events belong only to them because they are the ones who listened to the snake and ate the fruit and nobody else since then has done the same thing. 
uh, since if you read to the end of the chapter, you'll see that the way back to the tree was barred. No one can do what Adam and Eve did. It's their story and it's theirs alone. But we're also taught in the Bible that this text is something like a theological and existential paradigm. Uh, And I'm using big, grandiose words on purpose uh, because uh, what happens in Genesis 3 is that massive. It is huge. In our generation, what happens in Genesis 3 is the equivalent of our generation's 9-11 Uh, that kind of event, a single event after which nothing can ever be the same again, the ripple effects of which are felt uh, in uh, in multiple, multiple spheres. And so it's not just Adam and Eve. It's every man, woman and child playing along at home as well. Things are different now for all of us because we have inherited an intrinsic nature of rebellion against God And we've inherited a world that is in a fallen state, where the norm is to be separated from God. And that'll be uh, part of what we're touching more on next week as we look more closely at the consequences of the fall. But the lessons in here are far from merely philosophical and existential and theological and all the rest, because not only are we all, since Adam, born in sin, uh, but we each, every day, willfully and repeatedly commit individual sins. And so this is all, also the story of all of us every day. And that's our main focus today. There, there is deep theological and philosophical minds to tap in Genesis chapter 3, uh, and we'll try to go deeper next week. But as you read Genesis 3, uh, you will find questions abound. There is so much detail to unpick and so, much, uh, so many implications to try to unwind, but we're reading it wrong if we don't walk away with a useful, practical framework for spotting and avoiding sin. Uh, we're reading it wrong if we don't see ourselves on the page. We're reading it wrong if we don't see a roadmap uh, for how to live life otherwise. I want to make two points about Jesus before we continue. Uh, in the first chapter of Mark, uh, we've uh, been reading the Gospel of Mark uh, on Friday nights in the youth group. Uh, if you've got a teenager, they'll remember these things that I'm about to point out. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, it says this about Jesus. This is chapter 1, early stuff about Jesus. The Spirit drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. Well, what we read today is, in summary, the story of a man and woman who failed to resist temptation when the devil visited them. But what we have in Jesus is one who faced temptation and resisted. And I wonder what is more of a comfort to you out of those two things. Is it, is it more comforting to you that Jesus resisted temptation or that he was, uh, in the first place, tempted, actually tempted, And the Bible does teach us to take personal comfort from that second fact. The fact that our Saviour has felt our trials and we are not alone. Uh, It also says in Mark chapter 1, this is the second thing I just want to point about Jesus quickly, it says that as Jesus went about teaching, uh, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. What did it mean that Jesus had authority? Unlike, especially authority unlike the other religious leaders and teachers of the day. Well, 
the lack of authority in the religious teachers is probably tied up somewhat in other criticisms that you can read about them, uh, that things like hypocrisy and greed, uh, corruption. But it's also obvious uh, not just that uh, the, te- the teachers and scribes lacked authority, but Jesus had a authority in spades. He had an abundance of it. Uh, and that, that abundance of Jesus' authority is at least somewhat linked to his divinity. He is, after all, the Son of God, uh, his identity as God himself. Uh, but there's something else in Jesus' authority that is pretty special, and it's tied to that first point about him resisting sin. While I stand here teaching with authority that I borrow from Scripture and with some authority that I try to bring as an example, a personal example of godliness, I speak to you also as one who stands in exactly the same predicament as every one of you. Uh, I stand as a man who struggles and falls into sin. I'm a man surrounded by equals. But Jesus was able to speak on sin without self-consciousness. Uh, He was able to speak as one who perfectly modelled the life that he was calling people to. He had an intrinsic authority that he didn't have to borrow from somewhere else. I call you with, with the authority of Scripture to lead a life that pleases God. I ask you in some sense to follow me as I follow Christ, but only in as far as I follow Christ. And so Jesus speaks with the authority of one who calls us to follow him the one who has faced temptation and resisted. Uh, And there's models in how he goes about that uh, that we'll have a little look at as we go. But let's look at Genesis 3 with a view to take up uh, a toolkit so that we might be people who avoid sin. So first, there's five points. First one, beware the devil. Uh, In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it refers uh, a couple of times, uh, and it says this... uh, uh, A couple of verses that say almost this. It says, The ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So this ancient deceiving serpent that you read about in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the one that it says uh, was more crafty than any other uh, animal, uh, this ancient deceiving serpent is the devil manifest. Now, I don't know exactly how that looked. Was it a snake who was possessed uh, by the devil, or was it the devil himself taking on some sort of fleshy, snaky form? I don't know. But the point is simply this. Believe in the devil and be on guard. Uh, in the Bible, in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says, Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Uh, maybe you've heard this quote. Uh, it's a quote that's been in circulation for centuries, but it was made popular in the movie The Usual Suspects. Uh, the quote is this, that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Don't fall for the devil's own trick. Know that there are forces out there wanting you to fall. And I wonder if, if, uh, if you're sort of a smart-alecky kind of type, 
Uh, I wonder if that picture alone might be able to lend you some resolve in this fight against sin. And maybe just knowing that when you fall, there is someone out there watching and waiting and cheering. Maybe that's enough to help you resist temptation with a bit of a, well, stuff you kind of attitude to the devil. You're not going to catch me out. Not this time. I know your tricks. Certainly it should, uh, this fact that the devil is real and he's out to get you, certainly it should make us tackle fleshy sin and temptation as a truly spiritual battle that it is. And so maybe, just maybe, pray something like the words Jesus taught us to pray, that we prayed together uh, in the Lord's Prayer this morning, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. They are sound words in light of a spiritual enemy who is real, who wants to see you fall. Let's uh, treat this as the spiritual battle that it is uh, and pray for strength. But what are the devil's tricks? And the first one uh, I've got up there to look at is doubt. And when I speak about doubt, I speak about uh, not just, not, not mainly doubt about whether or not God is real or whether he exists. There's actually a probably more dangerous and sinister kind of doubt. It's the doubt about whether or not God is good. And that's exactly the button that the devil pushes, uh, or the serpent, uh, when he speaks to the woman in the garden. He says, in verse 1, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Or maybe you remember that God said nothing of the sort. Uh, In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, God said, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Like, he's really emphatic on this point. You may, you may surely, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. There is just one of many trees that are pleasant to the sight and good for food. There is just one that they're not permitted to eat. Uh, but they, they are permitted and even encouraged to eat uh, from all the other trees. But the devil says, is it true that you may not eat of every tree in the garden? He's trying to somehow sow doubt into the woman's mind about God's goodness. You know, when you read the command of God to, uh, to, that you may eat from every tree, just not one, you get a picture of abundance. But when you start framing it differently... Uh, well, you can't eat from every tree. Well, you get this picture of, well, maybe God's holding out. Maybe God doesn't want what's best for me. Maybe God's a bit stingy. Maybe God's not the God of grace uh, that we were looking at uh, as part of his uh, eternal properties last, last week. So what's the devil's game? You know, the devil is trying to sow doubt into the woman's mind about the goodness of God. Uh, there's a lot of confusion uh, around about about the connection between faith and obedience or faith and good works Uh, the question is this and look if you if you are pretty new to church you might not know that this is sort of one of those debates that rages in the background but the question is this do we get a ticket into heaven on account of our good works our obedience being good enough or because of our faith and the right answer to that question is that it's by faith We don't get God's attention and work our way into heaven and his good books by trying to earn his favour through good works. We've fallen too far into the pit to jump out just on our own steam. 
And so it is by faith that we take hold of God's promise of forgiveness and eternal life. But we learn from way back here in Genesis chapter 3, and in fact throughout the whole Bible, that, that faith that is true is inseparably linked to doing the right thing. Faith and obedience are so much one that you've, it's kind of false to separate them. Because at some point here, the woman starts doubting whether God's commands are really good for her. She starts wondering whether God's holding out, which in context is madness, right? Because we've read the first two chapters. But it's also just subtle enough to get under the skin. So let me tell you uh, about the first time I remember being, becoming conscious of this uh, as a personal battle. And it might not surprise you that as a young man, uh, it was the area of sexual temptation. Uh, I'm grateful that I grew up in a Christian home. I was taught well in church about uh, God's plan for sexuality. Uh, when I was young, I had no difficulty believing that sex was reserved for marriage and was probably best enjoyed in that relationship. Uh, and there's a rock solid ration, ration, th- there's a lot of rock solid rational reasons that can be attached to that. Uh, For example, uh, if you save sex for marriage, then within marriage there's no comparison of previous sexual partners. Uh, You can avoid an awful lot of hurt in life uh, because sex heightens the bond of a relationship. And so breakups with a boyfriend or girlfriend, which are already painful, they're at least spared that extra layer of complexity if if you're able to leave that out of the frame. Uh, You also spare the risk of disease. Uh, There's no such thing as an unwanted pregnancy. There's no need for life-ending abortion. Adultery weakens and usually ends marriages, which then in turn leaves all kinds of fallout for men, women and children trying to survive broken homes. Not to mention a cascade of problems in society as a family unit is eroded and children are regularly raised outside of a stable home. I mean, the case, like I said, it is rock-solid. But you hit your teen years, hormones and desire start to creep in and and judgment gets clouded. Your friends start having sex. You wonder if maybe you're missing out. And then you get in your first relationship and you're attracted physically to the other person. And in all of this highly charged environment, you start to wonder if there might not be room for another way that is different and possibly better, probably better actually, than God's way. And I found that in this matter, when I was wrestling with temptation, I could no longer reliably rationalise the case for and against saving sex for marriage. And I had to depart from reason and lean only on faith. It's not that, re- that reason isn't there, it's just that I couldn't depend on my own reason and had to lean only on faith. I had to trust that God's way was best, even when I couldn't see it with my own eyes and didn't want to believe it with my own heart. Now, that's an example, and I don't mind spending a bit of time on that example because throughout the Bible um, and, and, in, and well into the New Testament, that, that idea of uh, the Christian sexual ethic is, is one of the hallmarks of, of what it means to be a Christian person, uh, to follow Christ in that matter. Uh, but... Uh, it's not just true of sexual temptation, it's, it's true of greed as well. When you see a colleague getting ahead with underhanded techniques, 
uh, and you start to think subtle stuff like, I could do better for my kids and my family if I just skim this bit here or cut that corner there. It could get cloudy enough that you need to abandon reason and remember to simply trust and obey. Uh, There are many times when you can tangibly measure the benefits of a certain sin or a shortcut. And the cost might be uh, not so obvious as the benefits. Or you might even be reasonably convinced that you can get away with it. But that is to buy into a false view of what's real, into a, a merely materialistic view of the world. And that is to doubt like Satan tried to do uh, with the first woman and man, that is to begin to doubt what God truly teaches about the harm that sin does to your soul uh, and the rippling eternal costs of sin. And so we have to overcome doubt with faith, resting even against reason sometimes because we can't trust our own reason all the times, resting in the goodness of God, the eternal, unfailing goodness of God. By the way, if you're ever struggling to sort of latch on to that, how, how can I know that God is good? Well, I hate to sound like a broken record, but remember at least this. He gave you his son. He is holding nothing back. He is not stingy. He is generous in the extreme, generous maybe even to a fault, if that were possible, of God. Remember his unfailing, limitless love for you. The third point, that's the biggest one, by the way. The third point uh, is pride. Uh, Pride is a really common way uh, to frame sin on the whole. So many theologians will say that all sin at its root is pride. All sin is on some level uh, putting yourself above God. And you can see uh, the serpent uh, pushing these buttons in verse 5. Well, from ver- starting from verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In some sense, that is the heart of almost all sin, is wanting to overthrow God. Uh, You you might have seen a picture of, uh, um, uh, or you you might be able to imagine a picture of God sitting on a throne, uh, and when you sin, you're you're essentially taking him off that throne so that you can take your own seat on that throne and say, I am the ruler of my life, thank you very much. It is usurping uh, or kicking out God from his rightful place. That's the temptation, is to be like God, to, be, uh, to choose your own destiny, to do it your own way. And it says in verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. Uh, this is her putting herself above God, believing that in this she knew better. Uh, pride uh, and arrogance... Uh, is at the heart of uh, what you might recognise as defiance. And that is the most obvious wickedness of this sin uh, because they, they just blatantly disobey what God has said. The one thing that God has said not to do 
is the very thing that they go and do, and they're in on it together. Now, the eating of a fruit feels kind of like a small thing, doesn't it? But eating of a fruit that you were told explicitly to not eat, well, that's, that heightens things, doesn't it? That's different. They know. And especially when it seems, uh, when it's a fruit that seems to promise a good thing like wisdom that even God desires. It's subtle. But when you're told not to, it is that simple. When you think of sin as pride, putting yourself in the place of God, you can see why sin, even on a simple level like this, you can see why it so drastically undermines and separates our relationship with God. Uh, Because we suddenly put ourselves standing against God, toe-to-toe with him, battling him uh, for authority and rule. Uh, Then there's deception in all of this. Keep your eye out for deception and bathe yourself in the truth. Uh, The project of deception began at the beginning uh, when the serpent subtly questioned the goodness of God, because God is, of course, unfailingly good. Uh, The deception is also there in the fact that uh, the serpent uh, tells uh, also blatant lies. So he sort of, he quotes to a point or or borrows phrases from what God has said, but he introduces one thing. He he, He adds this promise that you will be like God, which is not a thing that God had said. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. He also says... He undermines the, the consequences that God had said. God had said, on the day that you eat of the fruit, you will die. And the serpent says, you will not shortly die. And of course, uh, eating the fruit did not make the woman and the man wise. It made them ashamed. It opened their eyes, not so that they could see good and evil like they'd hoped, not so that they would be like God, but so that they would look at themselves and, and, and feel bad. And they didn't die that day, and we'll, we'll have a little talk about that next week. But sin on that day, uh, but death on that day entered the world. The devil got it wrong, and he probably knew. He was lying. It's deception. The antidote to the deception and lies of the devil, and failing the devil, the world, the antidote is to know God's word, to fill yourself uh, with his instructions Uh, to fill yourself, uh, his instructions, so that you know what you must do, to fill yourself with his wisdom, so you may be able to balance the scales when uh, when the areas are grey, and his promises, so you can hold on to, uh, to the knowledge of his love. You must know God's word. Uh, and and uh, I mentioned at the start about how Jesus, uh, at the beginning of his ministry, went into the wilderness. He was tempted for 40 days by the devil. And if you read uh, in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, uh, the lengthened account of what happened there, each time Jesus counted, uh, he, he fought back with temp- the temptation by quoting scripture. He knew the word. He fought back with truth, not with reason, not with arguments, but with simple, handed-down truth. We must bathe ourselves in the truth of God's word so that we can see through the lies 
so that we can have light in a dark world. The last point up there is repentance. You might be reading Genesis chapter 3 and thinking, where do we see repentance in Genesis chapter 3? Correct. (laughs) It's not there. It's probably, like I, I challenge you to find a louder silent sermon on repentance it is it is devastating by its absence in these words man and woman when they sin their first step is to run they cover up and then they hide from god and god still comes to them and then when god says where are you they say well we're naked and we're ashamed so we hid who told you you're naked well the man says the woman made me do it and the woman says the snake made me do it where is the person taking responsibility for their actions by the way you might read the early verses of chapter three and think gee these women are bad news The man does not escape responsibility. In fact, it says there that he is with the woman while this is happening. He is the one who was given the instruction not to eat of the tree. It was his job to tend the garden. It was his job probably in the first place to boot the snake out when it started getting lippy. Uh, It was his job to pass on the instructions to the woman. It was his job uh, to not eat the fruit himself if it came down to it. No one escapes responsibility, but all of them want to pass the buck. And I guess I invite you, I encourage you to look again in contrast to Jesus. Because one thing Jesus taught in his life is to take responsibility. And he took that to the extreme. Because Jesus is the one man who never sinned. The one man who never needed to taste death as a consequence for sin. And yet he took on the punishment for sin because of what we had done. He didn't just take responsibility for his own actions. He took on responsibility for the evil and wickedness of the world. And now you might say or you may have been taught that at the cross, the cross and what Jesus did there is essentially a thing accomplished essentially just a thing that Jesus did for us uh, and, and we give him thanks for that thing that he did. But remember, Jesus also said, take up your cross and follow me. Now, the cross isn't just a thing that he did for you. In the cross, we see a model of how we ought to live. We ought to be people who don't shy away from responsibility. We should be people who run at shame, who accept it where it falls, and fight against it. And yet Jesus did do something that we can't do. He led the perfect life. He took the punishment of the sins of the world. And he died the death that was due to us. And he rose again. And so we must fight sin, we, might, we must use the tools that the Bible gives us, we must use uh, the example of Jesus' life, 
uh, not only to fight sin, but to demonstrate love and to do positive good as well. Uh, And we should certainly uh, praise a God who, in light of our fallenness and in spite of our sin, continues to pursue us and continues to meet us with grace and his love and even his favour. Let's pray. Father, I believe it is easy uh, for us to see ourselves uh, in these words. Uh, People, each of us, uh, who uh, have doubted your goodness uh, and chosen instead to go our own way. Uh, Each of us, people who at times have decided our way is better, uh, acting defiantly and willfully against you, Father, each of us have been foolish enough to believe lies uh, and fall into sin. We pray that you will uh, equip us instead uh, with truth. Give us faith. Grant us your Holy Spirit uh, to lead us safely through uh, the trials and to deliver us from evil. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.